We are reading out of Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Before any plant of the field in the, was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man where he had, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedekel. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. And I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was the name to the that was the name that they were given. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to, ma to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and the wife, and they were not ashamed." The word of the Lord. Thank you so much. Not only did I give you a long passage today, but it had all those names in there, all those weird names. You did great. It was awesome. I didn't know you were a Hebrew scholar, but thank you. Well, guys, good morning, and it's great to be here. Laura and I have never experienced a Halloween at Carlton Landing before, and this totally lived up to the hype. And it was one of our favorite weekends, and you guys really cleaned up well from yesterday. Everybody's looking good. 
This was so fun because it highlights a lot of things that we really love about this place, that it's a family place, um, and this is a family church, and kids were like a month, maybe. I always hate to promise this, but maybe a month from Kids Church, but I actually love having you guys in here with us. This morning, we're starting something new. We've been in the Gospels, and now we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the first couple of pages of your Bible. But I want to start with a commercial that came out in 2015, and I've never been able to get it out of my head. It starts with a little boy, and he's riding his bike in the neighborhood of Inglewood in Chicago. And a voice comes on the screen and says, see, you wouldn't ask why the rose that grew from the concrete had damaged petals. On the contrary, we would all celebrate its tenacity. We would all love, to, love its love to reach the sun. Well, we are all the roses. This is the concrete. These are my damaged petals. And then a little line comes on the screen that says, we're all kids from somewhere. Powerade. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure. I mean, it was a stroke of brilliance in some kind of marketing meeting to come up with this commercial. I have no idea what it has to do with Powerade. And I had to look up what company this commercial was for, but I've never forgotten those lines in the commercial. We're all kids from somewhere. Now, our culture is obsessed with origin stories. If you look at popular media, if you look at branding, if you look at the way that we are endeared to people through politics, through celebrity, through backstories, memoirs, biographies, the origin story, sometimes even a mythical origin story, holds so much power over our imagination. I think about the semi-mythical origin stories of Silicon Valley, that nerds in their garages were starting these future trillion-dollar companies, which most of them are part true. I think about every time somebody runs for office and they put out a memoir so that you can know where they came from. And I think our culture is obsessed with a particular kind of origin story, a started at the bottom, up and to the right, progress, see what I've made of myself kind of origin story. That shape of origin story from humble beginnings to greatness is an embodiment in our culture of what it means to be successful, to be whole. But the Bible actually tells a different kind of origin story. The shape of the narrative in the Bible is really different. In fact, it's more like our meme that's become very popular, how it started versus how it's going. That would be the perfect embodiment of Genesis 2 and 3. How it started, great. How it's going, horrible. Or those movies where you get to the intro of a scene and, the, and the, the, the frame freezes and it says, you're probably wondering how I got here. This could be Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, it could be almost every page of your Bible between Genesis 3 and Revelation chapter 20. You're probably wondering how humanity got to where it is. The shape of a biblical story starts at the top. God creates a good world full of good things, good people, good trees, a great garden, amazing um, irrigation system in the Garden of Eden, as we'll notice when we talk about it. Everything is working just right. And then everything changes. In fact, the origin story that we need to be concerned about is one that tells us that things were created good, and then they were fractured, and then God stepped in to remake 
the universe. You can know a lot about who you are by where you came from. That's the point of origin stories. If you want to know who you are, look at where you came from. And so my question is, why don't we talk more about our origin story? The movement I want to put before you this morning is not just from Eden and away and back to Eden. God's actually doing something different because humanity doesn't return to the Garden of Eden. Humanity returns to the new Jerusalem, which is what the Garden of Eden always should have been. What we're going to talk about this morning is God's plan for putting Adam and Eve in the garden for the beginning of humanity and how he's worked through history to fulfill it. Genesis is like a symphony orchestra where you hear all the little themes that are going to be played in the next couple of hours in the opening bit. And from this story in Genesis 2, there's five things you need to know about how you were created to understand who you are now. The first one is that you were created, right? This doesn't seem like something you would need to say, but it's a good reminder for us that we had nothing to do with the beginning of all of this. You are created. In fact, you're not just created. You are created by a God who loves you, wants to know you, created you so that you only run when you're in relationship with him. And the opening line of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is the most important foundational belief in the Christian worldview. I was so thankful to get to go speak at my alma mater this week, OCS, in Edmond, and we were doing a little apologetics Q&A. I just love that they were doing this. I would have loved this as a high school kid. They took all these questions that the kids had asked, and they, they, they sent them to me beforehand, which I really appreciated, so it could look like I'd really thought about this before we got to the questions. But we were asking, they were asking questions about apologetics, and we were answering them, and I was just struck in the middle of this that there were so many good questions, deep questions, but they all started a little bit too late in Genesis, so, for example, we got lots of questions about how old is the earth? Can we trust scripture? Um, I loved one of these. It said, being a rational person, it's very hard for me to believe in things like miracles. And I thought, that is such a great question. But it starts too late in the Bible. Because the fundamental question is, how did everything begin? And if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything else in the Bible. If God spoke and created all of this out of nothing, then I'm not that troubled by things like resurrection from the dead. He's the author of everything. He's a creative God. From the first page of the Bible, we realize that God is life-giving. In fact, the very first thing we find out about God in the Bible is that where God's voice is, life springs up. You and I are creations of God's voice, speaking into nothingness, creating us, having a relationship with us. He is overflowing with creativity. That's our God. And if you can believe that, you go through the rest of the Bible and you realize that over and over and over and over again, God is creating life. He's recreating our hearts. He's recreating the universe. He is bringing it to completion where he will have created a relationship with him that we're designed for. When you get to chapter 2, it gives us some detail. It zooms in. So think about chapter 1 as like a 30,000-foot view and chapter 2 as a ground-level view of what's going on in creation. God bends down. He rolls up his sleeves. He gets into the dust, and he creates what this text says is a dust man, 
Okay, we don't get this very well in the English, but in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, the Lord God formed the man of dust. Okay, man of dust, literally translated dust man. First superhero. And God bends down, and he begins to breathe life into this person. What this tells us is that God's intention from the very beginning is to bring life to us. And what we've forgotten with a lot of our origin story explanations is we think that the physical and the spiritual should be separated. So we have a physical explanation for the beginning of the universe, but do you have a spiritual explanation? Because God shows us from the beginning that when he creates man, there's something different about man. He uses his own breath, his own spirit, to animate human beings. In fact, you know, that word that we use in English, animate, means spirit-filled, animated by the breath of God. So the first thing we've got to know is that God created the world a certain way. He created you. And what that means for us now is the creator gets to make the rules. This is a principle all the way through Scripture. God created it to run a certain way. And you can grate against that creative design if you want to, but it can only last so long because the creator created you a specific way. I mean, a lot of the way that we live our lives is like if you have your car and you pull up to a gas station right now and you look at the gas prices and you say, well, I'm not going to pay that right now. Instead, I'm actually going to go in and get a gallon of water, which is way cheaper, and I'm going to pour that into my car and I'm going to run on water. That would be a really costly thing to do. Why? Because your car is not designed to run on water. It's designed to run on gas. And you could want it to run on water if you want to, but that's not the way the designer made it. And the designer gets to make the rules. The creator gets to make the rules. You were made, created by God, with specific purposes. Whether you know him or not, whether you love him or not, whether you worship him or not, your heart, your soul, your body are meant to do things God's way. So the second thing we've got to know about our origin story is that you were created in his image. You were created in his image. We see this in chapter 1, verse 27. When he gets to humanity, it says, So God created man, and that's man and woman, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That together they would image God. Now, there are thousands and thousands of pages that have been written about what this phrase means. What does it mean to be in the image of God? And I want to lay out three things for you that are entailed by the fact that you are an image bearer. The first one is that you are the crown of his creation. There's something different between when God makes plants and animals and birds and reptiles and fish and all of that in the first chapter, and then he comes to the crown of creation. And I hate to tell you this, guys, but... Man is not the crown of creation. Actually, woman is the crown of man. So he goes through this entire creative process, and he creates Adam, and he says, man, there's something missing here. And he says, I'm going to put Adam to sleep, right? Because Adam is not ready for what's about to happen. He needs to put, hey, buddy, this is going to, be, this is going to blow your mind. So I'm going to put you to sleep for a little bit, takes out a rib, creates Eve, and then when Adam wakes up, he bursts into song. This is the first song in Scripture that Adam sings when he sees Eve. And it says that Eve is the glory. She is the image of creation. She is the wow factor of creation. And together, what Adam and Eve are going to do is they are going to image God, which means they are the capstone 
of what God has created. They're separate from everything else. They are in the world, but they are separate from the world. Now, the second thing we've got to know about the image is the image bearer means a reflection. So the, the word that we use in Greek for image through the New Testament and through the translation of Genesis is the word icon, right, icon. And think about an icon on your phone or on your computer where it is a small image of something bigger. When you click on an icon, you open up something larger. And what it means for you to be an icon or an image of God is to reflect him, to mirror him, to take your substance from him, to think the way he thinks, to act the way he acts, not to be him, but to be like him. We undersell humanity sometimes for good theological reasons. There is a difference between the creator and the creation. That's a given. But the creation was made to image the creator. You were designed to look like God. That's what it means to be his image, to be creative like he is, to be righteous like he is, to be wise like he is. That's what you were made to be. And the final thing is it also means to be a representative, a representative One of the commentators, Walter Brueggemann, put it this way, it's now generally agreed that the image of God reflected in human persons is after the manner of a king who establishes statues of himself to assert his sovereign rule wherever the king cannot be present. One of the totally unique things about Adam and Eve in the garden is they have been given the authority to represent God, to rule on his behalf in the garden as his co regions. So how do we know that this is true? Well, the first thing we know is that it tells us that we're created in his image, but it also tells us that he breathed his breath of life into us, into every person, and so every person has the dignity of being an image bearer. And this actually has nothing to do with the person. This, this is not something that is specific to your personality or your achievements or what you've done in life. This has everything to do with what kind of entity you are in the universe. You're an image bearer. And therefore, you have all the dignity of the crown of creation, the reflection of God, and the co-regent of the ruler of the universe. Jesus talks about this. Do you remember when the Pharisees come to him and they're trying to trick him? This is in Matthew chapter 22. It says, the Pharisees had gotten so frustrated with Jesus that they wanted to get him in a trap. So what they did was they came to him and they said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The trap was that if Jesus says yes, then he's a sellout. He's bowing to Caesar. He can't be king because he pays taxes to Caesar. But if he says no, then it's certain death because he's a revolutionary. And these Pharisees thought this is the brilliant question. And Jesus does something really interesting. He says, go ahead and give me one of those coins And he holds it up, and on Roman coins is minted the face of the emperor. And so in the reign of Tiberius at this point, he pulls up the coin and he says, whose picture is on this coin? Whose image? This is the same word in Greek in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament. Whose image is on this coin? And they say, well, Caesar's. And Jesus says, okay, so give Caesar what is in his image, but give God, what is in his image. So he's saying to them implicitly, what's on this coin? And they say, Caesar. And he says, what's on this person? And they say, God. 
Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And what is God's? Everything. You, your productivity, your hopes, your desires, everything that you've amassed, everything that you've hoped for is God's. Human beings, because they're created in his image, are full of his fingerprints. Give to God what is God. So the greatest thing you can ever do in your life is lean into the fact that you were made to image God. You were made to look like him. This is the broad path for your life, to be an image bearer of the creator of the universe. But there's a third thing. You're created to worship. You're created to worship. This is the desire of all human beings. And in order to show you this from this text, I need to go over a little bit of geography of Eden. And this is something that we totally look over when when we study this passage in Genesis because there's a million things you could spend time on. But the geography is really important in the opening parts of the Bible. So you'll notice he plants a garden in Eden. Okay, so we, we typically think Garden of Eden is one contained place. But actually at this point, we're on a mountain. You know that because the rivers are running down, right? The principle of gravity is working, even in Genesis 1 and 2. The rivers are running down from a high place, and there is a land of Eden, and in the land of Eden, the east part of it, God plants a garden. So you have a small garden of Eden, a bigger area of Eden, and then you have the rest of the world. And God's holy mountain shows up all through the Old Testament referring back to this moment. Now the words here are really important. We take garden and Eden as proper nouns, just names of places. But Eden, the big area, means delight. It means like a wonder, something that is gratifying and satisfying. And the word garden means paradise. It's actually where we get the word paradise is from this term. So God plants a paradise in the midst of delight. God plants a paradise in the midst of delight, and these paradise gardens have some very well-known features in the ancient world. For example, they always have walls because they're exclusive, right? This isn't just something we get from Milton in Paradise Lost. It probably is a walled garden. And the kings who would proclaim themselves gods would always have these gardens because this was the place that gods were known to live, in these paradise gardens. So you have a big walled space with all these plants, sacred places in the ancient world. And think about something like the Garden of the Gods in Colorado, where it's a big, expansive area, but instead you have a wall around it, and that's exactly what they say in Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took man, put him, this is literally, in the garden of God to work it and to keep it. What does this tell you about how you were made? That God creates a little place that is reserved for gods to dwell, and he brings humanity inside his garden. This is so unique in creation stories. There's not another ancient story where the gods actually create human beings to be with them. Instead, it's always the gods are over here and humanity is created down here. But in this story, God creates humanity as they were designed to be, with God, walking with him, talking with him, being with him. This garden is a temple. It's the first temple. And the cradle of life is in a place of unending worship. Adam and Eve were worshiping and they were with God. They were talking with him, dwelling with him every moment. That's why it's so radical when they sin 
And God walks in there, and they're not around. They were designed to be with him. Worship is the central driver. It's the central motivator of every human being. The architecture of your soul is made in such a way that there's a little altar, and something is going to go there. You can put something else on there if you want to. It doesn't have to be God. You can put anything you want on there, but you are designed to worship whatever is on that altar. And so God, in the beginning, was himself in the middle of that. And now, because of sin, which we'll talk about next week, something else is typically on that altar. But you can never have an empty altar. You are made to worship. I had a friend who was doing mission work in a, in a predominantly Hindu country. And he had had this meeting several times with a guy that he's sharing the gospel with. And finally, the guy's like, all right, I, I, I'm going to worship the one true God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to worship God through his son, Jesus, I believe that he died for my sins. And so he goes over to his house, and in these houses, they have all these little household gods. They have these household altars. And he had given him a Bible, and he goes into his house and looks over at the altar, and on the altar is this Hindu god, and right next to it is this Bible. And he says, hey, this is not the way it works. You can't, you can't continue to worship these gods. And the Bible says, why not? He's like, I worship the god, and then I worship Jesus. And he explained to him, look, that's not the way it works at all. There is one true God. There is one Savior. There is one object of worship. And anything else renders it null if it's on the altar with God. In the Garden of Eden, God created human beings in such a way that they would forever worship something. And the story of the Bible after that is God slowly helping us to put him back in the center of of our worship. Number four, you're created to work. Okay, I know most of us think that work is a post-fall phenomenon, right? It must be because of sin that we have to go to work, but work is pre-fall. It's actually pre-marriage. The first human institution is work. God gives Adam a job to do in the garden. It's in chapter 1, verse 28. He says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. This verse, Genesis 1, 28, is the most repeated, most commented on verse throughout the Old Testament from this section. Because it defines what the vocation of humanity is. And I'll tell you this, I think we have a very unhealthy uh, distinction between spiritual work and physical, or sometimes we call it secular work, that does not exist in the Bible. It just doesn't. There are holy things you can do, but you having a vocation, spending yourself, pouring yourself into something, subduing things, bringing order and beauty out of chaos in the world is a godly undertaking. And to think that you go to work during the week and you come to church on Sunday and those are two separate things is not a biblical distinction. The work that you do, the things that you create, the order that you bring about, the way that you image God at the office is exactly what this story is talking about. You were made to do that. Now, as we talk about next week, it got a lot harder when sin entered the world, right? But the vocational drive is the same. You were made to work. In fact, if we were to summarize what you were made to do, it's to take the walls of the Garden of Eden, and expand the garden across the entire world. That's what it means to work. Take this garden, subdue it, 
expanded all across Eden and all the way to the ends of the earth. And you'll notice at the end of the Bible, this actually happens. The city of the New Jerusalem comes down and it fills the entire earth. This is happening. Whether you believe in it, whether you're working towards it, whether you're working against it, this expansion of God's presence, his temple across the earth, is happening. And this is what we mean in the New Testament where we say the kingdom of God is at hand. The garden has started growing. And it's never going to stop growing until it fills the whole earth. Here's the last thing. You were created for relationships. You are created for relationships. There's a wonderful book by a guy named Larry Crabb called 66 Love Letters. And in this book, in the intro, he says, I woke up in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep, went to my Bible and started reading, and I thought, what I really need is an intro to the Bible. What I really need is somebody to give me a little preview of maybe what this book is about so that when I read it, I know what's going on. And he just started writing in Genesis, and then he moved on, and that night, all the way into the next morning, he starts writing these summaries as love letters. What if God wrote you a letter about each book of the Bible, and you read that as you read the Bible? Now, he's not saying that this is on par with the Bible, but almost like a little setup to understand the Bible. And in the one on Genesis, he says this. This is in the voice of God. Did you ever stop and ask why I made everything? Why my spirit, my son, and I created the stars, moon, planets, while we made paradise on earth? The three of us were making preparations to throw a party, to invite others to a big dance, to a dance that we've been enjoying since time began. But there were no others to invite. So at a family council, we decided to create people, human beings just like you, whom we could enjoy as they enjoyed us and all the beauty that we've made. That's why we created Adam and Eve with desires that only we could satisfy, because plans for the party are underway. The creation story is not one of obligation. Nobody made God create the universe. God created the universe because in his goodness and in his glory, he knew that by creating us to enjoy him, his glory would only increase that joy in the universe would only increase. To create human beings who would be satisfied in him, who would worship him, who would walk with him, would actually bring his character greater and greater and greater fulfillment in our lives. So you've been created for him. And this is something, as Christians, we often forget. Non-believers were created for him. If you don't know Christ, you were created for him. That's something that's missing in your life, whether you acknowledge him or not. The human DNA is meant to be joined with God. You've been invited into his life. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to pay for your sins. He didn't just come to set you free. He came to rejoin you in relationship with his Father. This is what Romans 5.1 says, Now that we've been justified through faith, we're at peace with God. We are being reconciled relationally to him. And actually, you will never experience wholeness. You'll never experience the satisfaction you were designed for until you are reconciled to him. That's just how you were designed. But we're also made for relationships with other people. I love to mention this at weddings. God conducts the first wedding himself. God delights so much, not just in us having a relationship with him, but us having rich and intimate and meaningful relationships with other people. In fact, the last line of our passage today, it captures, I'd love to talk more about this when we get back to children's church, but it says that they were naked and unashamed. 
That is a picture of the intimacy you were designed for. Not just within marriage, but with with God. What, What it means to be reconciled to God is to be totally without barriers before him. To totally invite him into your heart. To be filled with the knowledge and the presence of God. That is the relational desire that every human being has. So to conclude this, none of these things have changed about you. This is your origin story. You were created by God in his image to worship, to work, to be, re- to be in relationships. We were made for God. We were made for each other. This is the nature of our souls, our bodies, our lives. And yet, in Genesis 3, every one of these areas is jeopardized. And in fact, you can't really understand what happens when Adam and Eve sin unless you understand the original creation template. We still bear the fingerprints of our creator. We still yearn to worship him. We still only function when we have a relationship with him. We are only whole as image bearers. The path of history is that you were created for God. Sin has warped and twisted your desires, but Jesus has come to set things right again. Not just to return us to Eden, but to bring us back to what Eden was supposed to be, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the full maturity of knowing him. And next week, we're going to talk about what happened when sin entered the world. Let me pray. Father, thank you. You did not have to create us. And Father, thank you that you continue to recreate us. Father, that each day that we walk with you, we are closer to being with you forever. Father, thanks for this wonderful description of your intentions for us. Remind us this week, Lord, as as, um, there are so many moments to forget our origin story. Father, there are so many rival narratives, so many rival gods, so many rival idols that we can be pulled to. Remind us that you've made us to only find our satisfaction in you. Father, I pray that you would enliven our minds and our hearts and our spirits when we think of what you've done for us. Lord, help the cross of Jesus Christ to be present in our minds and our souls to remind us the price you paid to buy us back and to redeem us. Father, we love you. We're made for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.